Welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction. My name's Philippe Naren, and I'm a GP and addiction medicine advanced trainee in Melbourne. I'm joined as always by Dr. Fergal Armstrong, a general practitioner, as well as an addiction specialist and lifestyle medicine specialist. Fergal, thanks again for joining another episode of Cracking Addiction. Great to be here. And I would actually state for the, uh, the viewers and the audience of Philippe, and you've also recently acquired those hallowed letters, FASLAM. So you too are now a lifestyle medicine specialist. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Uh, I, I still feel I know nothing about lifestyle medicine and it's, it's a journey. But again, one could argue life is also a journey, as is addiction medicine. And yeah, and everything's view- all learning. That's right. All and learning our, is a journey. Yeah. And our listeners and viewers are joining us on this journey. And on this yeah. journey today, this episode, what we're going to be focusing on is alcohol withdrawal, but more in a residential setting, i.e. in a medically supervised setting. So, Fergal, I think the main differences in inpatient versus outpatient uh, withdrawal management is the patient is more closely supervised, the doses of medications can be managed more aggressively, and we can treat patients who are sicker, have a lot more multimorbidity and comorbidities and patients who are frankly unsuited for outpatient withdrawal. Is that a, is that a fair summary there? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. So you've got a higher level of supervision, especially in skilled nursing supervision. And really, it's the default position for anyone who's not fit for, uh, who doesn't fit the immediate inclusion criteria for a non-resi withdrawal. So the decision should always be does this patient meet the criteria for non-residential home-based detox? So the answer is no. Always send them to uh, residential withdrawal facilities for their managed detox. You just don't want to take any risks, and uh, there are no heroes. <coughs> Sorry. And there are no heroes in NRWA. There are no heroes in non-residential withdrawal for alcohol. So. It's always better to be safe than sorry. But it does, it does come with it changes in the way that we approach the, the, the withdrawal management. How would you define those changes then, Philippe? I would start off by focusing on medication, and then we can talk about monitoring after that, because obviously we give our medication based on how the patient is going. I would say the main thing is one can be a lot more aggressive with the medications given in residential withdrawal because the patient is there with you. You see them 24 hours a day for however long they're there. And there's the medical and nursing support if something goes wrong. So for example, in an earlier episode, we talked about fixed dosing of diazepam for outpatient withdrawal and how the patient would come and see you every day and you would give say, I think the example I used was 5 to 15 milligrams QID on day one, which is probably about a grand total of six or seven tablets, maybe eight tablets if one's being generous on day one. Actually, probably a tiny bit more than eight tablets. But we're talking about max 12 to 16 tablets of diazepam. In inpatient withdrawal, you would probably be willing to give 5 to 20 milligrams at a time and you would probably have a maximum on day one of close to 120 milligrams of diazepam. And yeah. then 
Obviously, the dose decreases day by day as one goes through the withdrawal paradigm. The time course is very similar to outpatient uh, management of alcohol withdrawal, but the doses of medication increases. And that's not including complications or uh, subtleties in the management of patients who are at high risk of, say, withdrawal seizures where one would front load them with diazepam or load them with diazepam, as we say. Um, and that is a high dose of diazepam to guard against seizures. And by that, if we're talking doses, we're talking about 20 milligrams and then in a couple of hours, another 20 milligrams and then usually another 20 milligrams. So we're talking up to 60 milligrams as a front loading of diazepam to guard against someone going into a withdrawal seizure. And these are quantities of medication I don't think anyone would feel quantity giving, comfortable giving a patient in an outpatient setting. Is, is that a fair statement, Fergal? It is, it is. So just to reiterate, so really what we're saying is that in a, in a home-based detox, you'd give 60 milligrams over the day. In a, in a, in a residential hospital-based detox, you're looking at a top dose on day one of 120 milligrams, and if you're pre, if you're front loading with diazepam for someone who's high risk, you're actually giving 60 milligrams within within uh, six hours. You know, 60, 20, 20, 20 with two hours apart. So within six hours, you're getting your full 60, which is faster than the, you would anticipate giving it in a home-based withdrawal. So yes, you're able to give more medication because they're supervised, and not only are they supervised in terms of giving medication, but also we can give something called PRM medication. So in the, in the situation of someone who's already been front-loaded with diazepam, you can give pro-renata PRM medication if they seem to be continuing to demonstrate withdrawal symptoms. So you don't have that ability to review patients hourly in a home-based detox. So what kind of dosing would you give to someone once they've hit the 60 preload? What, what kind of medication regime would you choose to use thereafter? And I think that's a very good segue into titrating medications to scales and scores. So usually, depending mm. on your organisation, you'd probably try and monitor a withdrawal using either the alcohol withdrawal scale or the CWAR scale. Uh, those are the two common scales that we use to, to manage alcohol withdrawal. And you're basically trying to make sure that the patient's score is, for, for an alcohol withdrawal scale, under 5, for CY to be under 10. Uh, you're trying to make sure that they're not in significant distress or significant withdrawal. And to answer that question, based on the score, you would probably give a, a dose of diazepam. Usually, it would be in the order of between 5 to 20 milligrams. There's no fixed dosing per number. So, for example, there's no, say, number 16 on a CWAR or something along those lines that coordinates to a diazepam score. But it's due to a combination of scoring and nursing or medical practitioner uh, intuition as to, as to what dose of medication to give but you are titrating to score. So there is an evidence base based on the medication dosing. Yeah, yeah. So you could give up to 20 milligrams for another Correct. Uh, three doses and that would then get you up to the, the 120. Yes. So you've alluded to two scores and they're different. So it's really important for people to understand a score of seven, for instance, that might be uh, significant on AWS, but it wouldn't be significant on CWAP. 
I, I, I always try and use Siwa. Um, that's because I'm comfortable with it. I'm, I'm, I'm used to it. I understand. I know the criteria. But when you're quoting a score, you always have to be aware of what is the scale you're, you're quoting the score from. Yeah, You don't want to be making treatment decisions not understanding what the score is. But fundamentally, you know, it's a way of describing how severe the alcohol withdrawal is. It is neither of these scales are diagnostic. And that, to me, is a, is a very important point. Absolutely. And uniformity is the key here. Like you mentioned, Virgil, it's good when we're all singing off the same hymn sheet and you don't want any confusion or people doing their own thing or if usually in an organization someone has made the determination of what scale or what score we're using a lot of the time for withdrawal management it's heavily protocolized so usually you follow the protocol and things remain safe that way so it's again you need to titrate to the patient but again that issue of safety which we talked about in the early episode is the most important thing and it is important that although we can use high doses of medications, they must be prescribed safely with the evidence base and following the accepted treatment paradigms of whichever institution you're a member of. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's two points that I'd like to bring up. Firstly, the, the timing of when you actually start benzodiazepine therapy. And secondly, going back to this idea that these scales are not diagnostic, you, you you don't give benzodiazepines until you've diagnosed alcohol withdrawal and their, their uh, BAC as a pre, is at a predetermined limit. So there are other medical conditions that can look like alcohol withdrawal. So you put them onto a scale and you think, oh, they're, they're scoring highly on a particular alcohol withdrawal scale. Therefore, they must have alcohol withdrawal. Therefore, we're going to start using benzodiazepines to treat something like a, a hyperactive delirium due to a seizure or a hyperactive delirium due to a, due to a brain bleed. You know, th those kind of c catastrophic misdiagnoses have happened. So it's really important that, to understand that you have to independently diagnose alcohol withdrawal before you put them on a scale. And likewise, you don't start everyone on benzodiazepines the minute they walk into your detox unit. You know, in my experience, we kind of wait until their blood alcohol level goes to 0 0, uh, 0.1, which is twice the drink driving limit before you would even start giving out uh, benzodiazepines. So that's twice the drink driving limit. That's absolutely true. You don't want to put someone who's already in a compromised position at further compromised, in further compromised by sedating them. So again, safety first, and also make sure you are treating the right condition. Like you mentioned, Fergal, there's a lot of things that can mimic withdrawal. You want to be very certain you are treating withdrawal and uh, that you are actually providing assistance rather than potentially hurting someone. Yeah, yeah. Having said that, though, I have, you know, talking about the BAC of 0.1 as the cutoff for starting benzodiazepines, I have actually seen a patient um, go into a, an alcohol withdrawal seizure when their BAC was still 0.3. Wow. So guidelines are guidelines. You know, <laughs> a lot of patients haven't read the textbook, you know. But that's the problem with all forms of medicine, I think. That is true. You know, it would be it would be great yeah. if if every one of our patients followed the the course of Harrison's or, or Tally or Connor, but uh, uh, yeah. unfortunately, not to be. Are there any other yeah. issues that we 
haven't quite covered, Fergal, that you wanted to talk about in regards to residential withdrawal management? So I think it's important to understand the time frame when you would expect the most severe withdrawals and when you can expect complications and what they look like. So, you know, most, even even severe withdrawals, most of them are finished by day three, you know. So if you're looking at someone who's still in withdrawal beyond day three, you know, you're, you're, you've got to ask yourself what else is going on. If you also, the, the other issue that is important to look at is what's, what do you do when you hit 120 and they've still got symptoms, if they're still scoring 10 on the CY scale or more, what do you do then? What, what would you say to that one first? I'd probably reassess the patient. I think this is something where you need to look at the patient and find out if there's something else that might potentially be going on. Very rarely, yeah. there could be patients who might need a bit more medication. As you mentioned, not everyone follows the textbook, but the vast majority of people do. So when there are exceptions, we need to make sure there are exceptions and there's nothing else going on. The question then is, are we treating another condition? Are we treating another kind of dependence? Is there some, some other pathology going on? And we, one does need to tread cautiously and carefully. My usual practice in a situation like this is to consult with a colleague, whether it be a fellow general practitioner or addiction medicine colleague, to make sure that I'm not missing anything and sometimes to make sure that a fresh pair of eyes is also available as well because sometimes when we're looking at the same patient that, for example, we've admitted, we've seen them, we think we know what's going on, uh, a fresh pair of eyes is always good to say, oh, did you think of X, Y, Z? Would, would, you, would you say that's reasonable, Virgil? Absolutely. There are no heroes and there are no lone rangers in alcohol withdrawal management. Yeah, teamwork is always best. I have had to go higher than 120 of diazepam, though, for an uncomplicated alcohol withdrawal. I've gone up to about 160. But some of my colleagues in the UK, they, they advocate an absolute top dose of diazepam as, a, as 240 milligrams because okay. at that point they say that every single GABA A receptor is occupied by the benzodiazepine. But I've, I personally have never gone more than 160. Um, at that point, I would use something else. What would be the alternative agents that you might consider? I've uh, heard... I've heard... Top dose. Yes, I've heard of baclofen potentially being used in a situation like this. I've never practically seen it or prescribed it myself. Have you had any experience yeah. using baclofen in a situation like this, Virgil? Yeah, I have. I've, I've used baclofen on top. Um, I've used, I, I had a patient who needed 160 of diazepam, then ultimately 60 milligrams of baclofen in a day. So that's 20 milligrams three times a day of baclofen. I've also had one patient who ultimately needed a general anesthetic. So they needed a, a propofol, propofol midazolam infusion. They were in intensive care anyway, but you know nothing else was working. And we ultimately had to give them an infusion to uh, give them a general anesthetic effectively. Uh, that, was a, that was an interesting case. And you know, I, at the time I was thinking, well, this is a terrible situation. What if they go into respiratory depression? So, well, they're in intensive care, their, their airway is being supported. You know. They're being given, a, they're connected up to a breathing machine. So, you know, just give them a GA and um, wake them up in a day's time or 12 Absolutely. hours time. So that's, that's what happened with Mike. Worst alcohol withdrawal that I ever saw. Hmm. There are certainly some complications and we do need to, to guard against that. But uh, hopefully with the medications that we're talking about and the regimens that we're prescribing, uh, we can hopefully guard against that. 
Something I don't think we have quite mentioned is uh, thiamine uh, and the importance of thiamine as well during uh, withdrawal management, even in the residential facility. In residential facilities, uh, given that you're potentially seeing patients of higher acuity who've got uh, potentially more profound nutritional deficiencies, for patients who you think are significantly at risk of Wernicke's encephalopathy, um, usually... uh, my clinical practice is to top dose on 500 milligrams IV three times a day. Some people can also, who may be at less risk, you can go 300 milligrams IV three times a day. But if we're talking about oral, at a minimum, given the oral, uh, the decreased uh, absorption of thiamine orally, I, I usually prescribe 100 TDS as a minimum dose of thiamine. Do those doses sound about right to you, Fergal? If you're actively trying to treat Wernicke's encephalopathy, you shouldn't really be using oral dosing. You no. need to be giving parenteral, either IM or IV. Um, and, I, and I think also it's really important to emphasize and to reassure people that to actually have a very low threshold for deciding that somebody needs treatment because you know, the risks of parenteral thiamine are very, very small and it is life-saving. You know, it is brain-saving. You... you you are averting potential irreversible brain damage. So for me, always have a low threshold for starting treatment. And the other thing though, that I always say to my colleagues is that don't look for the triad of Wernicke's being confusion, ataxia and ophthalmoplegia. Don't look for that before you decide to treat. Because only 10% of patients with Wernicke's will have that classic triad. As far as I'm concerned, any neurological symptom in the context of alcohol withdrawal merits a high dose of uh, parenteral thiamine. Uh, True words have not been spoken. Going on to another medication we talked about in an earlier episode, oxazepam, and mm. with regards, just a quick note on the dosing of oxazepam, the way I try and remember it is about three to one. If you were going to give 20 milligrams of diazepam, 60 milligrams of oxazepam would roughly be about an equivalent. And Essentially, that's the kind of dosing regimen that you would be using for, for oxazepam if you're using it in withdrawal management. Is, yeah, uh, yeah. I actually use three to six to one. So my top dose of oxazepam, five milligrams top dose would require 30 milligrams of oxaz. But, you know, it doesn't really matter, you know, once you yeah. just, because the key thing is, that, is to actually decide that you actually need to change from diazepam to oxazepam. Yes, um, we, I, I mentioned earlier there was the issue of what do, you, what do you do when you're still in withdrawal or think that a patient's still in withdrawal, withdrawal beyond day three. I mean, how would you manage that situation? Again, clinically assess the patient, see what might be going on, and just check if it might not be a polysubstance issue that we're under-treating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like I've said before, a lot of the patients I see are polysubstance users, uh, monosubstance users certainly pre- present, uh, and those are usually the patients that are, that are picked off for home-based uh, or outpatient withdrawal management. But make sure you're treating the right intervention. I think you mentioned uh, earlier, Fergal, make sure you're treating the right condition. And then I think you need to go back, take a detailed history, and make sure that there's nothing else that you're missing. Yeah. So... I think we've covered a lot again in this episode. It seems our episodes are getting more and more action-packed. I'd like to thank our listeners and viewers for joining us for yet another episode of Cracking Addiction. Please join us for the next episode in a week's time, but bye for now.